welcome to Knock On Podcast, where we bring you archery information and education that you can trust. Knock On was created as a way to bring all archers together, regardless of the brand you choose or the style of archery you shoot. Knock On Podcasting will deliver professional insights to the latest gear, proper shooting technique, along with high-level equipment setup and tuning. What's up, everybody? Welcome back. Another knock-on podcast. Uh, this version of the podcast brought to you by you. You are sponsoring the podcast by being awesome and giving me questions and all kinds of cool topics. Um, well, it's unfortunate some of my topics are people that maybe aren't doing it right. So sorry if that's you, but I'll help you out. I'll make sure you're you're good to go. Um, been a few weeks for the podcast, but I've been busy. Been in Alberta. I was up at Red Willow Outfitters. Uh, man, what an epic trip. Super fun. Uh, amazingly, very last minute, um, a hunter who had booked dropped out. So they called me and said that they wanted to try to fill one slot with a hunter. So I called Andy Stump and I said, hey, bro. Uh, you're in Montana. You're not that far. How about you pick me up at the airport and save me rental car? And he asked his wife, and she said yes. Next thing you know, we had an adventure of a lifetime. It was amazing. Got his first uh, bow kills, and we had an awesome time. It's always what I what I say is. If you go on a hunting trip with someone, especially one where you're putting on a lot of miles and wearing yourself out, uh, beating yourself up, everybody's got to do a lot of work for the other people there. Whenever you're doing that, true colors come out and you're either friends with someone for life or you kind of recognize that maybe they're not your style. But yeah, we, uh, we had an awesome trip. It was super fun. So many different stories to tell. I don't know. Some of you, um, when I asked what you wanted to hear about on this podcast, you said you wanted to hear about the trip. Uh, we had some pretty cool stories about the trip on Andy's podcast, which is called Cleared Hot. Uh, a really, really great podcast for any of you listening to mine and like the different uh, different subjects that I talk about regarding integrity uh, pretty much just being an all around good person and a lot of really cool subjects that, you know, make you a better person, then make sure you check out Andy's. And we've got a story on there, a couple stories that are hilarious. Um, I actually listened to it on my plane ride home, even though I did the podcast. A lot of times when I'm doing it with a friend, it's just like having a conversation. There's things I remember us talking about, but don't really remember. So I did listen to it and, that last 25 minutes, I was actually laughing out loud on the plane and literally crying out of my eyes. I don't know if it could have been from lack of sleep because four hours at the most average times 10 days, uh, I was a little wore out, but it was an awesome trip. And, um, yeah, it was just a perfect example of what it, you know, if you take a little bit of time, and give a few days to someone who wants to get into archery, wants to learn how to either shoot a target bow or learn how to be a hunter. 
um, dedicate some of your time and you know go out and mentor them and teach them and in this case uh, pretty much now I've got Andy who is um, totally one-upping me about every other day with something that he's hunting and with his resources he's going crazy and putting more in the freezer than I have already so um, I don't know we're gonna have a friendly competition with this deal but uh, and I guess I can't really one-up him because that means I'm gonna have to get in a wingsuit and start base jumping better than him which isn't gonna happen Uh, I jump from about three feet out of my my bathroom onto my bed and that's about it so that's as far as I'm going I might do a, maybe I'll skydive with them, but I don't know. Sharon could hang me for that. But anyway, let's get into some of your questions here. There's a lot of them. I've kind of scrolled through some um, just so I somewhat know the subjects that I'm talking about. Um, I haven't really looked at them in too much detail other than just highlighting the ones um, that are actual questions that I can ask uh, or answer, I should say. So, uh, one of the questions here was, let me see if I can find it. Someone asked a question. I'm just going to answer that right now so I can get this, um, this iPad out of my way. But someone was, um, asking, okay, it was TN Taylor. Um, I'm looking for the aftermarket brass, uh, thumb release for the knock to it. Um, so that aftermarket thumb knob that I have for the Noctuits, they're actually ones that Bailey had uh, came up with, Bailey Smith. Um, well, she didn't come up with it. One of her friends did, and he's making them. And they're called X-E-X Oki knobs. So evidently he's an X-Oki, but... Anyway, the guy's name is Vernie Broyles, and I'm just going to give his, well, man, if I give his, I gave his phone number out, oh well, we'll, we'll, we'll crash the guy's cell phone number. Get ready, Vernie, people are going to call you at all times of the night, but that Bailey put it online, so it's fair game. His number's 417-439-6641. He's got two versions of knobs that are really cool. He also makes a brass knob. They have a little bit more bite to them. There's a little bit more depth um, in the tread, on the thumb tread. Um, So you can get a little bit better feel. He also makes a aftermarket one now for a silverback as well, uh, which is pretty cool. If you're wanting to bling out your releases, you can. Um, The only thing is with the one... Uh, which you'll see it, the the trigger that comes out of your release is a little bit inset into that knob. Um, the only downside to it is you actually can't um, adjust your travel, your um, the travel on your thumb trigger without removing that. So you have to take that off, then adjust your travel exactly how you want your release, then put it back on. That's the only downside to it, but there's positive sides to it as well so take the pros take the cons uh call vernie just so you know i'm pretty sure he's an older guy so be courteous to him he's um if he's anything like my grandpa if you call him at 
um, 5 o'clock or 12 o'clock, he will be eating. And if you call him after 9, he's probably going to be getting mad. So, But maybe that's just my grandpa. But anyway, um, Vernie's a cool dude. Thanks for making our releases look better. And, uh, yeah, I originally tried to call him to see if he would um, be able to make those for me to have stock standard on the releases when they left here. But uh, Vernie, once he found out how many Noctuits are going out the door here, he was like, I'm out. So give him a call. He's a good guy, and he'll hook you up. Uh, Let's see that. Uh, TNT Taylor, you also had a second part to this question I didn't look at, so let me look at it now. Um, can you talk about how to train for certain events such as regional, state, uh, 900 shooting indoor, or something field in 3D? Dude, you literally asked for every single type of format to archery. That wasn't very specific. So I'll go back to, um, let's say you're training for an event. doesn't really matter what it is. It could be a 900. It could be indoor. It could be outdoor. could be field. Um, could be a hunting trip. So really the name of the game when it comes to being prepared for anything is putting yourself in a situation where you're actually, you know, doing dry runs of the exact type of thing that you're training for. Um, I really feel like it's super valuable to either create scenarios that are going to mirror what you're going to expect, and you can do that in a couple different ways. I think there's different stages to this um, as well. So let's just talk about a hunting situation. Um, In regards to a hunting situation, one thing that I've always done with Sharon and Harry that they really, really like is we try to take the 3D targets and recreate the type of scene or the type of setting that they are going to be seeing when they're in the field. And I know that's not, you know, it's not a guarantee that you can create it perfectly. But what I mean by that is, for example, the very first time um, that I took them bear hunting, we actually went up to Red Willow and we were hunting bears, um, up there with with those guys so we were hunting out of tree stands we were doing the typical uh you know hunting over bait so uh, i think harry might have been 11 um you know sharon was in the hunting a few years at that point uh but i really wanted to because they're shooting lower poundage they were both shooting about 40 pounds um, you know, shorter draw lengths. So I really like them to be having shots that were 20 yards or less, which, you know, for a 10 or 11 year old is going to be tough to do spot and stock bears. Right. So, um, we went up and hunted with those guys, but before that, what we did was I actually, uh, took my McKenzie bear target. I put it in front of a tree stand. I turned it on a quarter, quartering away, Talked about shot placement, um, talked about it being broadside, talked about not having a shot if it was quartering two, and I pretty much painted a little um, square, like a smaller square um, kill zone on that target so that we could talk about different angles, where to shoot it from, and all of their practice was really from that stand, shooting at that bear, facing quartering away, and they just really practiced at the distance, 15 yards or 20 yards, so that once they went there, um, 
both of them, Harry actually shot two great bears um, in one day. And both of their shots were perfect. Uh, bears went 30, 40 yards done. And they weren't even nervous in the, in the stand. They were just totally, you can go back and watch those episodes, but they were just totally in the moment focused and were able to just run at game speed without without blinking an eye because they had done it so many times and that's really really critical to any type of preparation is doing the same thing now when it came to say um, spot and stock hogs which we've done you know same thing we kind of were out in the yard moved around looked at some different angles you know came around to some different spots um, and then, you know, obviously shot from the ground and from different distances and even practicing at distances that aren't standard. So, you know, not just shooting at 20 yards, not just shooting at 30 yards. So, you know, literally saying, okay, let's stalk around to the edge of this tree, look around the edge of the tree. Then I want you to range it, range it, come back behind the tree adjust your sight both of them are shooting single pins so these are things that you have to do with the single pin um, and then once your sight's set you know draw back come out around the tree so that you're able to you know use that tree to block your movement and then go ahead and execute your shot based on the angle that turned the target all that stuff is like game speed preparation and you know i feel like it's super relevant now when it comes to target archery um, you know, I always put the same exact target faces on my targets and I practiced at distances that were relative to the game that I was playing. So in other words, you know, I don't sit around and, you know, try to shoot a Vegas face at 25 yards. You know, I shoot it at 18 meters because that's where I see it in the game. I don't go out if I'm preparing for a field round. I don't go out and shoot field targets. You know, I don't sit there and shoot um, the 20 meter face at 60 yards because obviously that's not what I face. I try to keep the 20, 40, 60, 80 centimeter faces. I try to keep those in the distances that are relative to the rules of the game. Um, I try to keep you know, the, the angles, um, within the rules of the game, I try to practice at least for feet of field, I would practice equal rounds unmarked and marked both, um, because both of those are relative to the game. So same thing goes for the numbers of arrows that you're shooting. I try to, you know, if I'm going out and shooting a full feet, then I've got to be able to Go out, have um, 30 minutes of official practice. So I, you know, shoot a few, you know, some warm up rounds for about 30 minutes. Um, then I go on to make sure that I can shoot 144 arrows within competition. And then I try to follow that by finishing up with four 12 arrow rounds at the end. So that's literally going to model um, you going to a tournament, having your warm up being able to have a quick little break, then going into the full 144 scoring arrows, um, then being able to go into up to four head-to-head matches. Um, so, you know, really learning what the game is going to be that you're playing and making sure that you're prepared for it. Because a lot of people, even though they 
know that they're going to go shoot, say they're going to go shoot a 720 round um, at 50 meters, you know, they just figure, okay, well, you know, I'm going to go, all I need to do is shoot 72 arrows a day. Well, by the time you go there, you kind of warm up in the morning, check your marks, sight in, then you have your round, then all of a sudden now you've got to have um, your head-to-head matches. Well, if all you were doing was shooting those 72 arrows every day in practice, well, your body's just not going to be used to all of a sudden having to dig deep and pull out, you know, four rounds of 12 more perfect arrows to get you into that medal round or get you on that podium. So that's really my, my philosophy is, you know, put yourself in the game situation. Um, you know, I train, I really practice how I'm going to play. That's, that's the way that I refer to it. Practice how you play, um, create those situations. Uh, you know, sometimes it's better to create things maybe that are a little harder for you so that you actually are able to make it feel more comfortable and more within your element once you're in that zone. Um, so in other words for that, um, there's, a lot of different thought processes behind what is people's effective range once they have, you know, the the pressures and the adrenaline and all these different outside elements and different mental characteristics that kick in when it comes to performance. So um, that's one reason why I practice a lot. Now, if I'm just if I'm just out, you know, trying to get reps for hunting. You know, I'm not actually trying to make sure, you know, I'm not trying to hone in my stalking skills, how to stock up, set the site, make the shot. Um, you know, if I'm not doing that and I'm just actually trying to get reps, make sure all my pins are good, make sure I'm just comfortable shooting and just getting, building that stamina in my reps and just ingraining um, shot process and shot detail then I do it at yardages that are longer than what I plan to face um, within that element just because, um, you know, a lot of people believe that, like in a hunting situation, um, your effective range is about half of what your comfortable practice range is. So, you know, I shoot a lot at 100 yards. Um, It magnifies my mistakes. It lets me know what I'm doing. It also really... you know, identifies if I have issues with my bow. Um, if I start getting a lot of wild arrows, you know, I can start to, you know, number my arrows and say, well, maybe this one's the one that's flying wild each and every time I shoot these six, you know, just a lot of different things like that magnifies when I don't follow through properly, or if I have slight difference in my hand pressure. Um, but I really like to practice at those longer distances because it, it really magnifies, the different mistakes that you're making. And, you know, I guess for me, it keeps it interesting as well. Um, Practice really isn't um, practice if you're not focused on what you're doing. If you're just going through the motions, then you're really not being effective at your practice. At that point, if all you're going to do is just go through the motions and, and shoot because you feel like you're obligated to shoot, well, at that point, you would actually be much better off just, you know, getting a silverback, making some, you know, just making some great execution shots on blank bales and just really finding your stroke, finding your timing, learning different uh, preload pressures to your trigger before you start your pull, a lot of small things like that. 
So hopefully that helps you out. Appreciate it. TN Taylor. Uh, thanks for the question, dude. Um, next one here is for from, let's see. I think it's G-Cubed Iowa. Uh, I believe that's how you say it. So you're asking, um, I know you're coming out with a new site, but can you explain yours having multiple pins, yet I always see you adjusting it for longer distances? So um, so my, my site is a four-pin site. So in other words, I have a pin for 20, 30, 40, and 50. Sometimes I shoot a five-pin. It depends. I have a few different ones. Um, but then what I do is anything over 50 yards, I actually adjust the entire site up and down and, um, or down mainly, uh, I'll adjust the entire site down and I'll use my bottom pin, uh, for each of those distances. This is really what I favor the most is having a multi-pin site with full gang adjustment because when you're in a hunting situation especially you know it's there's some situations where you're able to range move your site range move your site and some places um depending on the style of hunting you're doing if you know there's animals coming to a certain area and you know relatively those animals are low pressure um maybe you're trying to intercept them uh more so than uh, then call them and have them charging in, uh, then you're able to shoot a single pin sight, you know, and, and like with Sharon and Harry, they have a single pin sight, but I'm also knowing that I'm always, uh, behind them, you know, helping them range, telling them what, you know, exactly what to move the site to. If you're having to call the animal's coming, you're having to range, move the site, range, move the site, range, move the site, maybe call again, range, move the site. It starts to get really, really tough. Um, and I'm just not a big fan of that because then you're almost to the point where you're having to guess. Um, okay, that elk, you know, that elk was 63 when I just ranged it. Now he's made four steps. So I think, you know, he's probably sitting at about 58. So if my site's on 62, I guess I got to hold underneath the armpit. Like these are all things that you have to start factoring in. And actually when I was up in Alberta, one of my buddies that's up there, Mark, he had that exact situation happen where he had a site where he was actually ranging, trying to range the target, shoot, range the target, shoot. And then he ended up, uh, the elk, the bull ended up moving again, and he just kind of thought, well, I'm just going to guess where to hold my pin, and it ended up coming back to bite him. He ended up making a shot, wasn't a good shot, didn't recover the animal, and, you know, he was just super upset for multiple days because he's like, you know, I broke my rule. I didn't range, set my sight, then shoot, and the reality is that's really, really tough. So with my sight, I'm just a big believer in having a few multiple pins so that you can at least be able to adjust on the fly. If something's at 40 yards and closes in quick to 20, you're able to just, you know, go through those different pins. But then if something's past 50, in my opinion, I have the time to range and finite dial in that exact distance. And that's what I really like. And the new site that's coming will be able to do that. It will have, you'll actually have the option for both. You'll have a single pin uh, 
scope that goes on as well or you can remove that and put on a multi-pin attachment which will have multiple pins and then you'll be able to um, still slide the entire gang up or down um, depending on how you like to do it now for me i like to um, center my peep around my scope housing always the same peep perfectly eclipsed with the scope housing then i use my 50 yard pin uh, or my bottom pin and i'll just adjust the sight to the exact distance i need and then make my shot now some people um, believe in actually centering each of their multiple pins in the center of their peep all the time i'm not a big fan of that um, I think it just tries to get confusing and most people uh, have a hard enough time recognizing that. So I always just like to keep it really simple. Uh, eclipse your peep, your peep diameter with the diameter of your scope housing. If that's always perfectly eclipsed, then from there just use that bottom pin. And you, know, you should be able to, uh, what I do is I'll go out, I'll sight in uh, with my 20 to 50. I'll mark that line on my scope and I'll put an H next to it. That's my home base. Um, then I'll go ahead and turn. Um, I'll go ahead and turn my dial and sight in to where I'm sighted in with my bottom pin hitting at 60. And then I'll walk back and just try to try my best to just keep my arrow on the target and then go back to um, 90 or 100 and get a perfect mark at 90 and 100 and or 100 and then all i do is i'll um i'll find a scale um, lancaster archery makes pre-made uh calibration scales that are on like a piece of sticky vinyl and then all i'll do is i'll take those and i'll fold them right on the edge of uh, the scale and i'll try to match up a scale to where the 60 and the 100 match perfectly with the line that I've made for the 60 and the 100, and you'll be able to find one that matches. And then I'll just cut that out, and I'll line it up, stick it on, and I'll pretty much have my home base. Um, you know, Normally it's maybe about uh, an eighth to a quarter inch above that scale. And then so I've got my home base, and then the first, the first number on my scale is 60 yards. And from 60 to 100, um, I've got, you know, pretty much marks for every single yard uh, from there out. Works really good for me. And that's on my Sherlock site, which I've shot for a long, long time. Um, next thing I want to talk about before I get, um, before I forget about this, which is stupid. I should have started with this. It's September 7th right now. Um, so during this last week, um, Obviously, if you're in the U.S., you've seen a massive hurricane hit Texas. Um, a lot. I was up in the middle of nowhere. I was hearing about it. I actually didn't get to see much of the damage other than what people on my social media were posting. Um, so it was it was pretty it was it, it was devastating to say the least. So while I was up there, um, I was actually with um, with Andy, and I made an impromptu decision to raffle off my bow that I had built for this trip that was part mine, part Joe Rogan's, um, the one that I called Frankenbow. decided to auction that bow off um, with all the proceeds of that bow going um, to some efforts to help down in Texas. 
Um, the auction started to go crazy. Um, three people started bidding frantically on it. And, um, you know, I don't know if some of them don't want to be anonymous or some of them do. So I'm just, if you want to see the people that were bidding, I would invite you to go back through my Instagram um, and look at the picture that I have. There's actually a video um, of me with the bow another picture that I have holding a bow that says Project Texas, but um, there was three people that ended up bidding. Uh, through that, one of the individuals that won um, ended up creating a program that would actually match any of the other ones, and since there were three people bidding so so aggressively um, on the one bow, I actually called those people, and I, I offered the second and third person um, for me to actually build them, um, duplicates, um, and then also have some other cool prizes to go along with that. And all of them agreed. So in the end we raised, um, it appears we've almost raised 40 grand, um, off those three bows, um, to go down into Texas. So with that said, um, I also decided, um, Sharon and I both wanted to help out in any way we can. So we actually, um, I canceled a hunt that I had and Sharon and I got some plane tickets to fly down to Texas to help, um, with someone that's down there, his Instagram account, his name is, um, Omar Avila and his Instagram account is, um, Let's see, his Instagram account is, I gotta get it right because he's got numbers after it. So um, it's Crispy11B. Um, and, and Omar has an amazing story. Um, super amazing. And he's actually just volunteering, picking up loads of supplies, and then um, driving them with a lot of help from some of his military buddies, driving them into important areas within that, within the Texas, um, region and delivering supplies. So Sharon and I decided to, in addition to that, we're going to work alongside of archery country, who is a great shop down in the Austin area, um, to actually do, uh, we're going to do some cooking, to help anybody who um, has been volunteering, just really feels worn down and um, wants to come get a bite to eat. Uh, we're gonna have fruit, food, and drinks. Um, we're also gonna be, you know, if anyone is down there relocated, a big reason why we're going to this area is because a lot of the parts of Houston you can't get into. And Crispy's efforts are gonna get us into some of those areas with some of those supplies. Um, however, what Brendan has told me is that so many people have been evacuated and moved out of their homes that all of the outlying areas are absorbing that influx of population. So we really feel like us being able to help out with shelters um, and help different people that have been relocated and help with volunteers that are um, aiding in that effort um, is, is valuable. So that's what we're going to be doing, um, on September 11th at 5 PM in the, at archery country in Austin, Texas, we're going to be there providing some free food and drinks, uh, for people. And also I'm going to be there to dedicate my time to try to help, um, people, 
whoever's willing to make some donations because we're going to do another do, uh, donation there. Any donations are going to go right towards our efforts the next day to be able to go and buy a bunch of supplies and take them in. Some of these supplies have been medical supplies, uh, insulin, saving a lot of lives, being able to get insulin to people that are just in dire need of it. Um, but 100% of this is going to immediately go to use. But I'm going to try to be there Um Please understand if you're coming, um, even though I'm offering free lessons and help, uh, please realize I'm not going to be able to, to sit there and give you two hours um, Two hours as an individual. I'm going to try to do my best to be helpful to every person that's there and who's willing to donate. Um, I'll give you my advice. I'll watch you shoot, take a few pictures, maybe give you a few pointers to work on. Uh, take a quick look at your bow. If there's any troubleshooting things that I think might be costing you points, I'll be able to tell you that right away. Uh, certainly, you know, shake your hand, take a picture. Um, you're more than willing to jump on a grill, start flipping some burgers. We're going to be bringing some Traegers in. Traegers going to be providing some things for people for food as well. Um, so it's going to be a great event. And Sharon and I would love to see you there. It's on September 11th um, at... 5 p.m. and it's archery country the other thing too i'm just going to say this really quick so if you want um, to make donations directly to crispy who um, he's actually just has a paypal account set up this paypal goes right immediately the next day he's going to be making a run with supplies you can follow his instagram account he'll show you receipts of what he's buying each day based off contributions but um, if you want to do that, his name is Omar, O-M-A-R, Avila, A-V-I-L-A, 85 at Hotmail.com. That's his PayPal. So Omar Avila 85 at Hotmail.com um, is where those donations can go to. And, uh, yeah, like in the comments, you could just put, you know, knock on nation, you know, uh, thanks for your efforts, brother. Uh, that would be helpful. Another thing too is, and this is actually, um, an organization that one of the people that actually bid on the bows, he's actually the one that won the bow, um, has set up, um, an opportunity to donate through an organization. You have to go to www.rebuildtx.org. And this, um, charity actually, he is going to match, up to $1 million of donations. So if you make a donation there, he will match up to $1 million. And so the people that uh, bid on my bow, two of them bid 7500 bucks. They actually made the contributions into Rebuild Techs or RebuildTX.org. And he, you know, he obviously matched those. So both of those guys that bid 7500 bucks on the bow actually put 15000 into the pot. So between two guys, there was thirty grand that got put into there. Uh, so this is just really, really awesome. Um, I, none of these people, I, th I don't think, are looking for credit. So that's really the only reason why I'm not naming names and giving it. Um, but please try to help out. Come see us. The other thing, too, is... Even if you can't make it on that day, call Archery Country in Austin. And those guys are making big efforts every single day. And uh, they can find a way for you to help. 
So uh, please help out. This is a hard time in the U.S. with the hurricanes that are hitting. I know another one's coming. Uh, I'm doing what I can on this one. And if something comes close to your area, then do what you can. Um, so next archery related question here is from top climber nine. He's saying, I have a pro defiant 34, 29 inch draw at 65 pounds. I shoot a six millimeter axis, hundred grain points. The problem I'm having is I can't shoot over 75 yards without getting fletch contact on my scope housing. I use a silverback or a stand. Um, do I have a setup problem or an anchoring problem? So this could be a couple different problems. One, it could certainly be an anchoring problem um, because the closer your peep sight is to your arrow shaft, then uh, the harder it is for you to be able to get distance out of your scope. So as a rule of thumb, I can just tell you that most people that anchor properly um, with a handheld release, uh, with especially with the bow that you're talking about, your peep height from the top of your knock, the top of your arrow knock when it's knocked on the string, to the center of your peep is probably going to be somewhere around six inches. It needs to be six or slightly above six. If it's less than that, it means you're actually anchoring higher on your face, which brings the peep sight lower to the arrow, and that greatly starts to reduce clearance and your ability to get scale. Now the next thing is depending on your actual bow setup, if you have a bow setup that um, the scope housing is very big and the distance between your bottom pin to the bottom of your actual scope housing is say it's an inch, uh, that's a pretty big distance. You know that would easily be able to be that extra yardage that you need to have. Um, so you kind of have to watch that. You have to pay attention to if you're wanting to shoot longer distance, what you may want to do, say say you're shooting a site like mine where uh, you know, you're going to use multiple pins for everything up to 50 yards, then you're going to adjust the housing. Let's just say that you had that. What I do is I try to set it up to where my 50-yard pin is as close to the bottom of my range as possible. And then I'll actually individually adjust all the pins that are above that. I'll move them up. So in other words, I almost sight in backwards. I'll take my 50-yard pin. I'll move it almost to the very bottom of the housing. Uh, I don't want to go all the way down because then you don't have the ability to micro-adjust that pin slightly if you need to. But I'll leave myself a little bit of wiggle room, but I will bring that pin down to the bottom. Then I'll adjust the entire sight frame up or down until I actually sight that bow in at 50 yards. Then I'll go ahead and take the next pin above that 50. I'll adjust that to where I'm sighting in at 40. I'll take the pin above that, adjust it, sight it in perfectly at 30, then sight in at 20. And again, that's my home base. And what that does is that makes sure that my 50-yard pin is as close to the bottom of my scope housing as possible. Now, if you start out and you sight in with your 20 up towards the top, and then your 30s under that, your 40, and then your 50, and next thing you know, you have this big gap between your 50-yard pin and your bubble, or your 50-yard pin in the bottom of the housing, then you're losing a lot of opportunity to be able to shoot longer distance. So both of those things can help you, and uh, certainly, you know, make you 
a little bit more effective at longer range. The other thing too is I really like to have those that bottom pin closer to my level simply because one of the most important things that you're going to start to focus on as you shoot longer distances is paying attention to that bubble. You know, any type of cant that you have or lean in your bow that you have is going to start to greatly magnify left and rights. Um, that's actually something that people who um, effectively shoot in the wind start to learn how to bubble into the wind. Um, you know, you literally lean your top cam into the wind uh, with different amounts um, of angle depending on how much you need to adjust your arrow as it flies at different distances. It's almost like, you know, it's almost like putting a little English on the arrow. Um, but that takes that takes a little bit of time and, and effort and skill to build that knowledge. Um, but I like having my bottom pin closer to my bubble just because it allows me when I'm shooting those longer yardages to be able to pay closer attention to my bubble. The other thing too is um, what I really like to do when I'm framing and what I mean by framing is when I look through my peep sight, there's a hole. Then there's a pretty much an outer ring around my scope housing. Um, framing is pretty much building that eclipse. So taking the outer ring of your peep sight and making a perfect eclipse around your scope housing. This is one of the most important things for people who, you know, who just some days go out and they shoot a little, the whole group is high or the whole group is low. Also people that start to shoot longer distance. Um, once you start to shoot past certain distances, how your anchor feels on your face and how you have to adjust your head so you're looking through your peep in order to see that pin that is now down closer to your arrow, um, all that starts to factor in. So I actually like to do a lot of my framing focused on looking at the bottom edge of my peep and adjusting my head so that I'm just touching the bottom edge um, you know, eclipse or bottom edge of my peep, I'm literally like framing that so it's just starting to come and touch the bottom of my bubble. I, you know, I, lo I look at that as if I see daylight under my bubble. I know that my peep, I'm looking through my peep too low. If all of a sudden I've, I can only see half of my bubble, I know that I'm looking through my peep too high. So I really like to frame with that bubble because using the bottom edge of my peep and perfectly framing to the very bottom edge of my bubble uh, is a really, really good way to know that your highs and lows are going to be center. And because my focal point between my bottom pin and that bubble are so close together, it allows me to check the framing, the bubble, and where I'm aiming with the pin all within a very, very close uh, area. Uh, next question here is Nate, Nate Luce one, uh, pros and cons of a seven pin versus a three to five pin slider, um, and 0.019 pins versus 0.010 pins for hunting. Um, not sure if it's worth having the slider to practice longer distances. So, um, Hey, I've been talking about this a lot today. Just, this just happens to be how these questions are, are panning out. So, the pros and cons of just having a 7-pin fixed sight, meaning you have 20, 30, 40, 50, 60, 70, and 80 yards, that's your max, but that should probably be good for 90% of bow hunters, right? 
Um, the pros to it is obviously you're not moving anything. All you do is center your peep, center your housing, and if all your pins are sighted in the right way, then you got 20 to 80 ready to go. Uh, downside is starts to get confusing. You know, in the moment of truth, you start ripping back and having to count pins and uh, figure out seven pins and which ones you use. That can get a little tough. If you're shooting a slower bow, you probably won't have the ability for all seven of those pins to fit within your peep sight. Um, you know, they'll you'll they'll be spread out pretty dang far. Um, I think if you're gonna shoot a movable sight, minimum three pins. Uh, I shoot four. Uh, I've shot five, but the thing is, once I start to shoot five, it takes a bigger housing. And I'm this is referring back to a sight that's 20 years old that I've been using. Um, but once I go to five pins, obviously the the housing of the sight is bigger itself. Um, so I have to shoot a bigger peep in order to have that perfect eclipse. I've just found that with the one that I'm shooting, um, four pins is perfect for me. And I really like having four and the ability to slide the, when it comes to, um, the 0.19 versus a 0.10, um, funny enough, I actually shoot 0.29s. Um, I, I just really like covering the kill zone so um the really small faint pins i start to be able to lose them and i ended up having i end up having to light them up in order to see them in a little bit lower light situation or if i'm in a blind whereas if i'm shooting the two nines uh and i leave long tails on my fibers you can see like on my site i've got long fibers coming out just so that they can gather light. Um, the two that are the longest are my 20 and my 50. Uh, they gather the most light. But I really feel like covering um, pretty much, if you think of like um, on a McKenzie target, my pins cover the entire 10 ring. Um, and I just really like that in a hunting situation. I like to be able to to put that pin on the target and literally cover that up. I'm not trying to to aim like infantly. Um, I'm just trying to cover up that kill zone, let off my safety, pull through my shot, cover up that kill zone, apply my finger to the trigger and pull through that shot. That's all I'm trying to do. Um, I really feel like super small pins are great for, for 3D. They're great for target archery. They're great for shooting at little 12 rings, but... Um, I'm not really trying to shoot at little 12 rings. Um, I'm trying to cover up the kill and make my kill shot. And for me, uh, I just really like to do it that way. I know some people are different, but that's how I like to do it. I'm drinking some coffee here that Andy introduced me to. It's a black rifle coffee. I've tried several of the flavors. Um, the flavor that I'm really digging right now is this AK-47. It is the bomb diggity. And normally, our Nespresso machine is pretty dang awesome. But we, uh, I'm, ever since Andy and I were grinding beans on our midday little, well, I don't even know if we ever took an elk nap. We wanted to, but we never really had time. But we were grinding coffee beans and uh, making coffee midday in the jet boil back in some cool little spots um man was a good 
So it's kind of, uh, I'm enjoying this right now. It's taking me back to that. So um, next question here is from J6 Studios. And this dude was hilarious. Uh, he actually, I don't know if his, he's definitely an artist. Just looking at his pictures and stuff here. Um, he's a big dude. And hey, just so you know, man, if you're you're looking, I'm, I'm stalking some of your pictures here from your last 3D shoot. Um, it says, it says it's your second indoor shoot. Um, your fit on your face is really good, by the way. Uh, your fit on your face, your anchor position, string angle, head position is really, really good. Um, all that's awesome. Try to not knuckle so deep into the release. So there's a picture of you, um, and it says my second indoor shoot. You've got multiple pictures there. If you look at that picture of yourself, zoom into it. And what you'll see is the release that's in your hand, which is a knock to it. So thank you. Um, it's actually right in line with, you know, it would be your second row of knuckles. So, you know, you're almost grabbing that thing as if it was a set of brass knuckles and... I don't know what your background is, but uh, you don't have to grab the knock to it like brass knuckles unless you're in a street fight, um, which at that point, I would definitely go two knuckle deep um, and go to town. But for archery, just, just try to leave that release right within, um, right after the first row. So when you when you take your fingers and you bend them around, there's two joints in your fingers. You want that release to sit perfectly down that center line instead of getting all the way past that second knuckle into the release. And what that's going to do for you, man, is when you look at this picture, you look like a tall guy. Um, you've got a little bit of a swoop in your front elbow. And what that's going to do, believe it or not, once you're able to straighten that hand out a little bit more, you're going to get just a little bit of draw length, um, which is going to allow you to bring that front arm just a little bit forward. Um, there's a little bit of tension in your front shoulder. When I look at it, because your bow is just a little bit short for you, you've got that little bend in your front arm, and you can see that where your humerus is packing into your scapula, you can see that your front delt is actually holding some of that load right there. Um, and with someone at your size, you know, over time, that can start to create some shoulder trouble. Um, so being able to get that front arm slightly extended a little bit. Um, but when you do that, don't change anything in your posture as you stand right now. You have really good posture with your shoulders being over your hips. Head position is very good. Um, even though that bow is fairly short for you, the string comes past the corner of your mouth. Um, but it does that in order for you to be able to keep your head perfectly straight like that and have the string at the tip of your nose. And the string does run past the corner of your mouth, which is really good. Um, so I would like you to see you just extend that front arm just a fuzz, um, just so that you can kind of keep that front shoulder a little bit down and forward. And again, uh, bringing that release to the center 
uh, row of your knuckles is going to help you get um, a little bit extra draw length um, out of that feel as well. Um, but going back to your question, you're asking, do you use, um, oh, I guess one thing I was going to say, what was hilarious is, um, he actually created this, um, logo. So last week during the live feed, I was, we, we actually, funny enough, I, we were cruising some different areas. I got out of the car to take a leak and all of a sudden I heard an elk off in the distance bugling. It was like right at prime time. And we were just cruising a lot of miles looking for moose because I had already tagged out. So I heard an elk and I said, Taylor, do you have your bow? And he said, yeah. And I said, dude, I just heard an elk. Let's try to call this bull in for you. So we jumped out. We hauled butt across this, uh, across the edge of this big pea field heading towards the timber. The bull was in the timber and I figured I could call him up towards the, towards the crop since it was so close to dark. And... I went live on Instagram as we were kind of running across there. They didn't know I was live, uh, but it was Taylor and a couple of his buddies. And as we were going, I could hear the bull getting closer. He was already responding to my call. So I said, I just put Taylor on the only bush that was on this, this fence line. And I said, dude, just stand right here. I'm going to try to, I'm going to go out in the peas. I'm going to try to call him out into the pea field. And I said, uh, I said, just wait for him to, to jump into this field. And I said, you should, you know, just stay hidden behind this bush and you should be fine. So anyway, the the bull was coming. I was filming. I was actually crawling on my hands and knees in those peas. And I was trying to stay completely visible. And there was also a rise. So there was like some terrain change. And I figured if I stayed just over the rise that that bull would assume I was just beyond the rise and that he would come into the field enough to try to get a look at me. And I was staying low enough to where I could just see the tip of his horns. And the bull, one bull, actually a spike, came right by Taylor at like 30 yards, I think. This big bull, I mean, it was a nice bull. It was like maybe a 300 bull. Uh, I was zooming in on it. was just coming perfect. Got to 80 yards kind of froze up as big bulls are going to and he was looking and he was you know he bugled back a few times and he was really wanting me to come to him so at that point I just did what I would do on a turkey which is I'm just gonna shut up and make him you know make him curious enough to where he comes um, because it was obvious we were in this talking competition of you come here no you come here no you come here no you come here so I was going to play hard to get so I just shut down my calling and was out there and the bull was really looking moving around and next thing I know someone let out a call literally right from the the one bush on this fence line which was no more than 80 yards from the elk. I could see the elk got startled, looked at the bush, and is thinking, okay, some kind of half-assed bugle just came out of that tree. There's obviously not a bull there. And then his, you know, his alarm was up. I could tell this is not good. And then the more he started to kind of go away, the more they were calling to try to get him back. But by then, the mistake had happened. It was kind of too late. And while that was going on, I was 
in the moment and intense, which if you ever hunt with me, you should expect uh, intensity in the moment. I get a little bit worked up. I kind of get real serious. Um, I was just like, who's calling? <laughs> I was like, really like, I'm like, why would they call right now? And then I was, then, so I turned it into an education of, okay, everyone, this is why this isn't going to work. I was calling, I shut down my calling to try to make him curious to get him to come. Then also next thing you know, this bugle rips out. Um, not to mention Taylor tried to bugle without a bugle tube, but then another guy was bugling, uh, with a tube that wasn't his. So needless to say, none of that calling sounded good. Um, so I just was in the moment and just said, okay, this is dog shit. This is dog shit calling. That bull is not going to come to a dog shit call. Well, J6 Studios made up a no dog shit calling patch uh, with his with his Photoshop skills. And uh, he had posted it on his page after that live feed. So I reposted it. So that's who that is. That's who we're talking about right now. But anyway, you're asking, do you use different broadhead tips for different animals? If you're hunting moose and come across a bear, let's say, do you use whatever whatever arrow you have in your hand? Um, For the most part, yeah, I can. Um, I really, really like the Rage Tripans. When it comes to just what they do when they open up and go through a cavity it is amazing it's ridiculous it's super impressive however uh in saying that there's also times um where there's times where a mechanical and a fixed blade have their pros and have their cons um if you're up there and this is here's the perfect example First day I was there, spotted a great muley and canola, made a really good stock. There was a lot of wind, made a good stock, got up to it. Uh, it was feeding in canola, and even though it was right there within my bow range, I could not have a perfectly clear shot to the vitals. And I knew that if my mechanical opened up going through some of that canola, there's a good chance it's not going to fly the same, which is technically the same. The same could be true with a fixed blade head. However, with a fixed blade head, if you do try to ram something in there, I think it's probably the better option. But, um, you know, there's just different, there's pros and cons to fixed blades and and mechanicals. Overall, I'm certainly a mechanical fan. I'm 100%. um, convinced that a rage hypodermic or a rage tripan are by far my best option when i weigh everything out those are my best options but one thing i will tell you is there's been a few situations where depending on how and i've had this on multiple types of mechanicals um there's been a time where all of a sudden you hang a blade as you're going through brush. You hang a blade and you catch it and you kind of open up the collar that's holding that shut. You pop that collar open. Um, and in that case, you have to like, you know, unscrew the broadhead, either put a new collar on or adjust the collar and tighten it back down so that the blades are contained. Um, so with that, uh, 
there's situations where all of a sudden I've looked down and without knowing it, I've snagged a blade on something or I pushed it too hard up into my quiver and deployed a blade. For that reason alone, I'm actually going to start um, hunting with my far arrow being a fixed blade head. I'm going to find a head that flies uh, that flies as best as possible. Um, they've been muzzy trocars for me. Also, Wackums are really Wackums fly really good too. Um, so I'm going to either I'm going to find one of those two. It's either going to be a Wackum or a Muzzy Trocar because both of those are two fixed blade heads I've shot really well. And I'm just going to have my far arrow, so my fourth arrow, be a fixed blade head. That way, if I'm ever in a moment where all of a sudden there's an animal coming and I just have to like throw and go, um, or if I look down and I've deployed one of my blades and i got to grab another arrow, I'll probably just grab that fixed blade quick just so that in my mind I don't have to really pay attention to that uh, being set however you need to make sure it shoots the same otherwise you're kind of defeating your purpose Um, but there is times where I travel with multiple ones so on this last trip I had two of my broadheads were hypodermics two of them were um, were tripans in my quiver so really what I felt like um, the the hypodermics that I had in my quiver were hypo plus peas. So they were the inch and a half cut with a little bit less blade angle. The blade angle was not as steep. It wasn't as flat. Actually, I guess it would be steeper, but it's not as flat. So you get better penetration with the plus peas. Um, so I actually had those heads in there for if I needed to shoot um, a moose, because I did have a moose tag with me. Um, if I had to shoot a moose or if I had to shoot, you know, say I saw a wolf and had to make a long shot, a long bomb, um, the longer the shot, obviously the more penetration I want to be able to have at a longer shot. So, um, I did travel with multiple ones in there and as long as you're shooting, um, I think it's okay to have multiple broadheads in there as long as you know how they shoot and as long as you know how they perform, um, Certainly, if I had a moose um, that came in, you know, probably 40 yards or less, I would just totally blast that thing with that tripan, wouldn't even think about it. Um, But if I had to shoot a moose at 60 or something like that, I probably would have used the plus P just because I know how dense that animal is and it would probably be uh, a little bit better choice. But as a rule of thumb, make sure you don't go out with multiple broadheads in your quiver and not know where they hit. That would be terrible. But I appreciate everything you do, man. Uh, I know you're from the Houston area, and you told me, um, I actually messaged you, you told me that your house is dry, which is, um, that is amazing. Uh, But hopefully everything down there in your hometown uh, levels out pretty soon, and we look forward to doing what we can to help your people down there. So thank you. Next question here is from Live Wild 76 um, How to choose a size of veins to use on a, uh, for, for slower bow speeds? So the thing is, when you have slower bow speeds, the slower your speeds, really the more options you have when it comes to uh, types of veins you shoot, 
types of broadheads you shoot, all the above. If your bow's slower, it's going to be more stable. That's all there is to it. So I would say really uh, just go with what works best for you. You can, you can probably choose more than most of us. Um, the slower you shoot, it's just kind of slow and stable, man. Um, so I would just really focus on you know what vein do you like. And what broadhead do you like? And see if the two work well together. Um, there's no mathematical way for me to just type something in and say, okay, this is going to work perfect for you. Because, you know, how that arrow performs, how that arrow flexes, um, you know, what type of hand position you have, your torque, facial pressure, how your release hand comes off your face, all that stuff starts to give arrows predetermined directions. And... Those are factors that aren't that aren't absolutes for me. Those are just guesses. Um, and depending on the type of head that you have on the front or the type of FOC that you have with your arrow, um, different things like that will really start to change how that outcome happens um, and the results that you're going to have from different variations, different combinations. But what I will tell you is if you do have a slow bow, um, you do have options. Uh, Sheeran and Harry shoot fairly slow just because they're shooting about 40 pounds. Um, so right now Sharon is actually shooting, I've got her with a six fletch arrow, uh, a six fletch on, and they're small. It's on a, it's a pro max vein. So it's a small little vein, little, like little less than two inch, uh, low profile vein but there's six of them and they spin really good, shoot really good. And she's going to be shooting, uh, either muzzy trocars or a four blade whack is what I'm going to have her shooting. Uh, and they shoot awesome, but you could also probably shoot really good and really stable. Uh, just having a three inch vein on there. Really the slower you are, um, the easier it's going to be to, to steer a magnitude of broadheads. Uh, next question here is from Max on Max off <laughs> shoulder pain in my bow hand while shooting. I'm only 22. Feel like my body doesn't want me to shoot for more than 30 minutes. Uh, once again, someone without me being able to see your form. So I can't really say much to you, dude, because I can't see how you're shooting, but certainly shoulder position can affect uh, shoulder pain, how you draw the bow, how you compress your shoulder back into the socket. If you lock that shoulder back and drive that shoulder back against the spine, or if it's very high and tucked up tight against the neck, um, that is not good. And you will actually just mimic that right now while I was talking to you. <laughs> I like mimic turning my shoulder in and pushing it up against my neck. And as soon as I did that, I actually had to just like lean my neck the other way and crack it because it was already uh, feeling tense and tight. So that's why it's so important for that scapula, front scapula or front shoulder to be down and forward. Again, just take your arms from your side, raise them up. Your left arm is, that's perfect form for your bow arm. Your right arm has to go around and forward to the string and then pull 
the string all the way back until it stops with that front shoulder being in that same position, that T position. You know, again, arm at your side, raise your arm straight up until it's level with your shoulder. That's the position it should be in. If you're pushing and pulling and driving that shoulder forward and the shoulder socket coming up high, coming up against the neck, coming up back against the spine, scapula back against the spine, all that stuff's going to start to build tension. Um, another thing too is your stance. If your front sh front foot starts to go ahead of the rear foot, then you'll actually start to turn your torso level or pe perfectly perpendicular or um, yeah, you'll start to turn your torso to where instead of you being slightly open, you're actually just straight to the target. And what happens with that is as soon as that front shoulder, the front shoulder follows the torso, when all of a sudden it's perfectly straight line, one, you can start to contact your arm or hit your arm, but also the shoulder is easily able to come up and creep up against that neck, and that's going to cause problems for you, man. So... Take a look at that, and uh, hopefully that helps you out, man. Uh, next question here is from JT Ferguson. Any tips about getting into indoor archery with a hunting setup? Uh, I want to stay sharp as a newbie. Um, also interested in draw weight, arrow types, all that stuff. So draw weight, arrow types, I've talked a lot about in the past. Maybe filter back through some other podcasts. Um for some of those questions main thing for newbie make sure you're drawing a bow that you can actually control so just like what i just talked about um, a second ago with max on max off is you want to be able to make sure that you can raise your bow straight to the target level with the target point your pin at the target and then draw that string back until it stops you want to be able to just pull the string not have to lift your arm way up in the air and push and pull and lean back and thrust you don't want to have to do any of that you want to be able to raise the bow draw it back to the face let it down lower the arm like if you can do that and especially if you can do it from a seated position then you're able to maintain the weight that you're using and that's really important for a newbie for sure the next thing is Hey man, don't be afraid to just go to an indoor archery tournament with your hunting bow. Um, you know, take the broadheads off. Don't go to an indoor tournament ripping some holes through their their target butts. They're not going to like that. But um, yeah, totally don't be afraid to do it. Maybe take your quiver off. Um, get yourself a little hip quiver. And uh, from that point, you're kind of rocking and rolling. But don't be afraid of shooting the bow hunter class, which is fixed pins. You're not allowed to move your pin once you sh shoot your first arrow. Um, I actually shot a hunting bow in the pro class. Um, the only thing I changed was I took my five pin sight off and put a single pin on. Uh, and I shot a single pin in a scope with no lens and um, I even shot, I was shooting a, uh, a, a Matthews LX bow, and I shot a, a 60X 300 round at Indoor Nationals with that. Um, so do not be afraid to, uh, to just take your hunting bow and shoot. I mean, that's, that's the cool part about leagues is just being able to go out there and hang out with your buddies and shoot. Um, 
practicing how you play, there's a lot that can be said about that. So uh, unless you're wanting to buy a different bow, then just do just take your quiver off, take your broadheads off and just go get repetition at the indoor shop uh, with your hunting bow. Totally don't be afraid of that. Um, it would, it's way more of an achievement too. If you go and if you go up there and throw down a 300, uh, with your hunting bow, then that's pretty badass, man. I would, I would go with it. Don't be afraid to do that. Uh, let all those target guys know that, um, that they just look cool. But when it comes to being cool, you're being cool with your hunting bow, uh, shooting awesome, uh, exactly how you're going to go out in the field. So I would, um, I would totally do that. Don't even, don't even double, don't even double guess yourself. I'm trying to drink my coffee before it, like, I shouldn't say it's getting cold because I know it's not getting cold in that Yeti. It's actually just now getting to the point where it doesn't burn your face off. Um, but I'm enjoying it and it is now after 6 a.m., and I haven't fully drank this cup of coffee, and it's kind of starting to, to wig me out, but I can't take too much of a break. Uh, that's a good thing about having guests here is they can take over and talk. And Actually, Sharon's behind me this morning. She's surfing the, she's surfing the internet right now for her birthday present. Did you find anything, babe? I was actually working this whole time, and the second <laughs> you turn around, I was online shopping. Yeah, right. It's true. <laughs> Well, she was, uh, we both didn't sleep this morning. So she was like, can I just sneak in there while you're podcasting and just stay quiet? Um, but yeah, I just turned around and she was looking at new, new boots for new shoes and boots for her birthday. Um, but supposedly that was the only time she hasn't been looking at those since I turned around. Um, okay. So mag 25 X has the next question getting left impacts past 50 yards. It's actually a tad worse with my mini silverback. I've walked back to and made adjustments. Um, let's see. <laughs> what the heck? I walked back to and made adjustments, so I'm thinking it's a torque issue. I will try to get the bomosexual Brad of all Brads to get some video of me shooting. Is a bomosexual... Um, can you, yeah, I guess that's a new thing. Officially started it. I have a feeling that, uh, oh yeah, <laughs> I forgot Brad, that video that he did when he, um, when he did that, he woke up with two bows in his bed. God, that was so funny. Um, so I guess that's why he's a bomosexual, but, uh, yeah. So anyway, uh, the thing is, if you're if it's worse with your silverback, then that actually is an indicator. I would have made guesses at that point uh, before you said that, but that kind of confirms one of my guesses, which would happen to be um, follow through starts to magnify, especially at those longer distances. Um, and once you start to shoot longer stuff, how you look through your peep, or some people because they're so focused. Some people are so focused on just looking through their peep sight. Okay, so with my shot routine, I talk about a shot routine being in a very specific order. Stance, grip, shoulder, anchor, peep. The reason that 
sequence is in that order is because it's absolutely critical that you anchor the same every time and then adjust your head so that you're looking properly through your peep. If you are the person who goes, you know, stance, grip, shoulder, peep, anchor, then what happens is at the longer distances, you'll start to change your anchor point in order for you to still look through your peep sight with your head in the perfectly same position. So you start to change your positioning of your anchor on your face. So if you're further out on your face at closer distances, then you start to come under and around the jaw at the longer distances. All of a sudden, you'll start to change your left and rights. Instead, you have to anchor, get that index finger under that jawline, middle finger right above the jawline, and then sometimes when you're shooting close distances, you've got to tip your head forward more so that you can look through your peep up to where your pin is higher away from your arrow, right? Then at the longer distances, your peep is actually, or your pin is actually closer to the arrow. So at that point, you've got your anchor, but you're actually almost having to look down through that peep sight in order to see that and people that just want to pull that peep back to their eye they have a lot of mistakes that start to happen and that's something that a lot of people in field archery have thrown points my way because I see them once we start to get into these very serious terrain type shots they start to just pull the peep sight back to their eye instead of drawing back halfway level getting that anchor position correct, putting the tip of the nose on the string, looking through the peep perfectly and centering it, then bending at that waist up so that they can acquire to the target. Um, now, with your silverback, if it's getting worse, and that starts to tell me that you're actually pulling down and away from your face as you come through instead of learning to pull and drive back and through and come through the shot, you're just pulling that peep to your eye, and as you're pulling through with your silverback, you're probably coming out and away from your face, giving you those left and right. So once you and your bomosexual buddy, Brad, um, when you two are hanging out, having your your bowmance, um, make sure that he's watching you with that silverback come out and back and over the top of that rear shoulder instead of down and away from the face. So hopefully that helps you out, Mag25X, uh, with your St. Louis Cardinal icon. You guys are into your baseball over there in St. Louis. Um, All right, so next question here is from Tyler Scott Stallings. Um, My wife keeps having the string hit her left arm. Um, when shooting she's right-handed she shoots a mission craze at 43 pounds with a stabilizer and crossbar anything she could do to stop this so once again i'm a i'm a instagram stalker so you've got cool pictures of yourself there tyler but guess what you don't have pictures of your wife shooting her bow so if you did i would be able to take a look and diagnose some problems but i guess before i get too deep into ripping on you for not showing her shooting her bow i will say thank you for serving us dude it looks like you're in the military can't say enough about you um and your you know sacrifice dedication everything that you're putting together for us you're awesome uh super super cool appreciate it and 
Uh, looks like you've had some pretty, pretty good fun with machine guns. Uh, looks looks like your uh, target practice could be a little could could be a little funner than mine. Um, but anyway, one thing that I would like to maybe talk about is um, looking at the position of her front elbow, or and what I mean by that is with your elbow. When you stick your arm out, lift your arm up, stick your arm out just like you're shooting your bow, take your thumb, and look at your thumb. If you turn your thumb up towards 12 o'clock or straight up towards the ceiling, uh, you can see that your elbow will actually follow that. Then, even though your arm is perfectly straight out, then go ahead and turn your thumb to where it goes to 3 o'clock you can see that elbow turn. So turn it to 12, turn it to three, turn it to 12, turn it to three. So what you wanna do is you actually, when you're doing that, you almost want your elbow in the same position as what it is when your thumb's at three, but you wanna be able to slightly adjust your hand to where your hand is almost pointing, or your thumb and your hand is almost pointing more towards like the two o'clock. So elbow position people that start to hyperextend the elbow you can rotate it in and turn it in and you can see that quickly the clearance that you would have with your string um, rapidly changes versus if you learn to turn that elbow out a little bit also now you have much more clearance even though your bow hand is technically in the right position so teach her to put that thumb into 45 and teach her to kind of just turn that elbow just a little bit so that if she imagined an arrow going through the center of her elbow on the inside and coming out the tip of the elbow on the backside, you want that arrow, that imaginary arrow, pointing as if it would be pointing towards 8 o'clock on a clock. That'll give her a lot more clearance on the front arm rather than grabbing a lot of times girls will grab the bow because they're a little bit afraid of it and when they grab it they turn that elbow to where that the tip of that elbow is pointing down to about 630 and that brings that elbow directly in line with that string the next thing is you really need to pay attention to her foot position so front foot should not be ahead of the rear foot so in other words if she closes her stance at all she'll hit her arm on the time where she closes her stance so uh, the toes should for sure at least be directly in line uh, preferably by me uh, i would like the toe of the rear foot slightly behind uh, the ball of the uh, the toe of the front foot um, in line with the ball of the rear foot. That's what I would prefer. Uh, and then take a look at that elbow position, man. And um, that should do it. That'll help you. She'll be good to go with that. Uh, let's see here. Going to get into uh, get into one of my last questions here. Oh, RJ Clockmaker had asked some questions too. I meant to answer his. Oh. There it is. Um, let's see. Specific details on how to deal with mentally and physically um, 
long tree stand sits, especially with no deer action to keep you sharp. So, yeah, there's a couple things there, man. Um, one, uh, podcasts are awesome. You know, have a have an, have an earbud in uh, one ear and listen to some podcasts. Uh, that's what's really cool about those new um, Razer XVs, um, the Walkers Game Ears. I really need the Walkers. I actually had the small little earbuds in a lot of times when I was hunting. Uh, it worked really good. Um, but you can Bluetooth into that into there. So, uh, you know, you try that. That's normally when I catch up on some of my podcasts is when I'm in there sitting um, the other thing too is depending on what you do, you know, if you're, I actually, there's so much going on in my life noise wise that when I get in the tree stand, that's the one time where I don't have noise. So I just really like to, to just soak it all in and just listen. I like it for it to be quiet enough to where I can actually hear nature again. Um, I like to, uh, I really like to do writing or go through ideas. Um, I do a lot of, I kind of take a lot of notes on my phone um, during that time. Uh, Otherwise, you know, hit some Candy Crush. I mean, there's, or, you know, take some coffee, take a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. Um, A lot of times when I start to really get to the point where I start talking to myself, uh, I'll just bust out a peanut butter and jelly sandwich and eat it. Um, the truth is, long sits, um, I, I almost think long sits are a lot like long runs. Um, when you first do it, it sucks. The second time, it almost maybe sucks worse. And then by the third time, you're like, is this really my thing? Um, but then all of a sudden, you start to get to the point where you're into it and you want to just keep it going and um i'm just i what drives me is what drives me is i think about the feeling that i have when i'm at home and i know that i'm not in my stand and i know that during that particular time of year something could happen and actually one of the bucks that's above me here was one of the first bucks that i shot when we moved to iowa and I had hunted really hard. I only had one tag that year. I had hunted really, really hard, uh, a lot of days, round the clock. And I remember I woke up, This the alarm went off this one morning, it was dark, and I could just hear the rain just pouring down outside. And actually, the night before, I had, uh, the day before, I had used a decoy the whole day, and I didn't know it was going to rain. So when I used my decoy, um, I actually, on my way out, I took, um, I think I, co- I forgot what I covered it with, but I covered it with something in the field. And I think I had covered, I forgot what I covered it with. But I woke up that morning and, you know, Sharon's like, why don't you just take a day off? And I was like, you know, I might do that. Uh, and I so I just thought about just... Like closing my eyes, and I just said, "Well, I'll go once the rain lets up." And it was just pouring, and then all of a sudden, I realized, "Holy crap, my decoy is out there in the rain." Um, so I sprung out of bed and I said, "I gotta go." And 
I went out there and I kind of took a tarp with me so that I could make sure that was going to stay totally dry uh, because it was actually a mounted decoy. Um, so I went back or I got in my stand. It was pouring rain. And sure enough, that day is the day that I ended up seeing the buck that I was after the whole year. Um, and it was post rut actually. And ever since then, um, you know, for the last seven years or whatever, I just continually every day that goes by where it's slow and I don't really want to be out there. Uh, I think back about that, like, you know, the one day that you were going to give in, that's the day that you got the one that you wanted. Um, the other thing too, is I do pick and choose my moments. I do want to say that, um, I really feel like I love hunting. I mean, don't get me wrong. I love hunting. But I'm also, I feel like I'm very efficient at it. So in other words, I don't have high expectations when I know that opportunity is low. I'm just trying to do my best to to take advantage of a opportunity. So in other words, you know, during, for example, this last week, you know, obviously August isn't the best time to find bulls that are screaming and totally hot all throughout the day. So... I just tried my best to cover ground with low expectation, make calls. You know, I wasn't, it didn't bum me out that I wasn't hearing elk call every single time I was out walking around trying to get one to respond in the middle of the day because I knew that that was a long shot. So I wasn't putting expectation on myself that would get me down. I wasn't expecting that. The other thing too is, you know, if I was going out, um, if I was going out in mid-September and sitting all day, obviously I'm going to know it's probably not going to be good. You know, I really like to pick and choose. Like last year, I did not hunt Iowa until October 26th. And October 26th is when I killed my buck. Um, so even though season was open for 26 days, I didn't hunt there. I didn't have a buck patterned. I knew that pre-rut really starts up right prior to Halloween. So I kind of waited for good sign to be visible, waited for the right bucks to start to be visible in daylight hours. And then I went out there and uh, made the chance or made the risk of contaminating my places. I really feel like if you don't have a good pattern and if you don't have a lot going on, then spending a lot of time there during the wrong time of year when those deer are nocturnal still and those deer are coming into those fields or cruising by those stands just as you're either getting in your stand or getting out, I almost feel like that can do more damage than it does good. Um, obviously, you can't you can't kill something if you're home on the couch. I realize that, but um, my good spots, I certainly leave dormant until the time is right to strike and i think if you do it that way you know i know once you know once halloween starts i'm hunting throughout the day um so i i just kind of mentally build up to that point i don't do it the entire time i just i know that when that time comes that's what i'm gonna do um but i don't try to force it and it's worked out really well. I've been able to stay sharp. You know, there's going to come a point, obviously, where if you're hunting all day for months on end, you're going to be burnt out. 
but try to limit that down to the absolute start out by trying to pick the absolute best week that you know of for season and do it during that time and see how your luck goes. And I think once you have success, uh, it's going to make it easier for you. Next, uh, last question here. I'll do one more is from van.keo saying what broadhead do you use and what diameter cut size? So I actually, I already talked about this. Um, Really, my my the ones that I'm going to pick the most is definitely going to be the Rage Tripan. I love that broadhead; it's awesome. Um, then the Rage Hypodermic is going to be next, uh, followed by a Muzzy Trocar, followed by a Wacom. Uh, depending on your fletch configuration, either a three or a four blade. Uh, I really like those heads. There's a ton of good heads out there. But those are the ones that I'm just telling you. For me and everybody who's seen what those things do when they get put to use, they are awesome. Um, So I appreciate everything, everybody. You're awesome. Uh, Thanks so much to the Knock On Nation stepping up, uh, helping with this whole uh, Texas Strong thing. Special shout out to uh, Al Fair who hooked up the winner with a SKB bow case. As well, special shout out to Handsome Rob at Great Grips or uh, Great Grips. What the hell? That was a company that that we had at Matthews twenty years ago. Um, Rattler Grips. Sorry, Handsome Rob. I if I if I wanted to spend an extra ten minutes, I could edit that out. But I'm just gonna let you be mad at me for something. Uh, he made some awesome, awesome grips. You can actually go to his page uh, if you go to uh rattler grips you'll see the set that he actually made out of antler that says texas strong and has the date of the hurricane limited edition these are for the three bows that people have bought um really awesome so uh, appreciate all of you and uh knock on everybody be sure to visit knockonarchery.com to see our entire line of trendy knock on lifestyle clothing knockonarchery.com